Well, thanks again, Andrew, for that fantastic kids minute. And I, even as we were singing earlier, I was thinking of this. You know, when, when Martin Luther nailed those, those 95 theses uh, to the door at Wittenberg, I don't think he knew what he was unleashing. I think he had initially had hopes that the church at that time, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, could be reformed, you know, from within. But something that ended up happening as a result of, of all his work uh, was that in churches, we went back to congregational singing. That didn't happen uh, up until that time. It had kind of evolved into something where you, you would have come to a gathering and you would have just sat there and you would have watched people on the platform perform. And there's, that's it. You were just a spectator. And so that changed and, and essentially we find that all of us together, we are the choir performing before God. And that's, that's a beautiful thing that was recovered uh, back in 1517 in that era. And so we're grateful for that. So there's someone, her name was Florence Foster Jenkins. She was a soprano, and she just loved to sing, uh, especially the great operatic classics. And she inherited a, a, quite a bit of money when she was in her 50s, and so she used that inheritance to essentially fund her musical career. And so she would uh, do things at like the Ritz-Carlton in New York. She would rent it out. And in the 1930s and 40s, she became really popular. But as one writer put it, quote, history agrees with hands held over its ears that she couldn't sing for sour apples. She couldn't sing, people. She, just, she had no business singing. And yet, she didn't grasp that she was that bad. So when people would laugh or hoot when she sang, she took it to be delirious enthusiasm about the great music they were experiencing there together. In 1944, she was 76 years old, and she did a benefit concert for the armed forces at Carnegie Hall in New York. Thousands lined the streets to get tickets, and the performance sold out in minutes. And the recording of that concert is still the third most requested album from Carnegie Hall. And her recording is punctuated by a painful rendition of Ave Maria. But what, what do we learn, though, from Miss from Jenkins? Well, people will say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. But it does matter. A belief has to match reality, or it's nothing more than a laughable delusion. And here in John chapter 1, as we continue our journey in the apostles' writings to the church, we find that belief must match reality, and that's going to show up in how we live our daily lives. Uh, up to this point, the apostle has been describing assurance in great detail. He's been warning against false teachers. And as he describes assurance, he's telling them, uh, I'm writing about these false teachers, but I want you to know that those of you in various points in time of your spiritual pilgrimage in Jesus you can have assurance that he's rescued you. You can know that you're saved. And so he emphasizes that. But as we come to this next section, we find that the apostle is going to let us know that that assurance doesn't simply lead to living however you want. No, belief has to match reality. And so in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, he gives us uh, instruction in how belief matches reality. In honor of God's word, would you please stand up and follow along as I read? First John chapter two, verses fifteen through seventeen. 
Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that in this time, you would take your word and by the work of your spirit, we pray that you would instruct us and teach us. We pray, ask, Lord, that those amongst us who are weak would be strengthened by you. We pray that uh, those of us who need to be confronted would be confronted by you. That those of us who are, are, are sensing a burden and a weight of discouragement, that we would be encouraged by you and in you. And that we would live together as your people in a way that makes the gospel visible to those around us. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. As the apostle begins in this section, uh, one massive declaration is very, very clear. It comes out. And it's simply this. Believers, stop loving the world. And that's a jarring statement, and he means it to be jarring. The way it's set up, actually, the, the, the way that phrase is put together, um, it, it's a very, very emphatic statement. John's confronting his readers. Uh, and, and you would think, well, wait, if they're believers, how can they be loving the world? Well, yeah, that's the whole point. Well, wait, if they're assured of their salvation, if he's just told them, fathers, you know him who's been from the beginning, and, and, and young men, you're victorious, well, then how is this possible? Well, the reality is, as believers, guess what we fight with all the time? Loving the world. That's a real battle that we face. And when we think of world, we go, well, what, what's he talking about there? Because th that term world is used in several different ways in the New Testament. We, we uh, see it used of the entire universe, kind of like the total sum of creation, the created order, the, the opposite of chaos, what God put together uh, when he, he created the universe and designed the universe and brought it into being. Uh, we might see world also used uh, at other places in Scripture as in the inhabited world. Uh, we find that in Romans chapter 1. Or we might see it describing the people who dwell on the earth. Uh, but it can also be used in the sense of the world as in the evil world system, uh, controlled by Satan, set in opposition to the purposes of God. And that's how John's using the term here. And so really this idea of the world goes into everything that makes up uh, the, the, the hierarchy of organized evil by the devil against God and his purposes. That's the world, the world system. Uh, it, it's, it's the thing that, that includes uh, uh, people running about trying to gain satisfaction and, and fullness in things that are empty. It's, it's people running around in their thoughts and, and attitudes and purposes and desires in ways that they try to live independent from God. As if who God is and what he's done is, is maybe a nice part of life, but not what life is about. And here, John says, believers, stop loving the world. What's love? Well, 
Here, it's the, the Greek word that describes a, a very purposeful attitude of esteem and devotion. Now, there are other words in the New Testament that would describe maybe more of a friendship kind of a love. This is the love that is to place a very high value on something or someone. And so he's calling on the readers to have a clear an intelligent evaluation of what is happening with the world and then looking at the systematic way in which it's designed to oppose God's purposes and to see that clearly and to say, no, I am not going to love the world system. And we might go on to think, well, you know, how, how, how would we do that? You know, how does that work exactly? Well, well, Paul goes on to tell us. So we might ask, you know, why? Why is it necessary to do that? And he goes on to say in the next part of the verse, love for God evicts love for the world system. That's why. You don't just not love the world system because you're not supposed to. It's the right thing to do. No, that's not it. He's saying here, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Now, now the question would be, what do we mean by love of the Father? Is it God's love for us? Is it our love for him? When you kind of dial it all down and look through it, because of the context here and what he's talking about, this is an instance where he's talking about our love for God. Now, it's based upon, he'll say later in this very same epistle, we love because he first loved us. So it starts with his love for us. It results in our love for him. But here the focus is the love for the Father when men and women in Jesus love God It excludes love for the world system. These are two mutually exclusive things. They can't both go together at the same time. You know, some things are completely incompatible. You know, oil and water, you might say. That's kind of like the old proverbial saying. There's other things that aren't compatible. There are pictures of me as a child when I am wearing like a deep blue shirt wearing green checkered pants. I'm sorry. That's just not compatible. Okay, I might have to talk to my mom about this later. I'm not sure. Like, mom, why? But it's not her fault. Don't blame her. But I didn't care. I was a kid. I, what did I know? Those things don't go together. Um, you, you, you can't take sh- a shower and play baseball at the same time. They don't go together. You, you can't whistle and keep your lips closed at the same time. They're incompatible. And you cannot love God and love the world system at the same time. Now, let's be clear about this. We're, you know, some people point this out and go, hey, wait a minute, there's another contradiction in the Bible. Because doesn't the Bible say in, in, in John chapter 3, God so loved the world? Yeah, and now you're called not to love the world? Make up your mind. Again, here he's talking about the world system. There, he's talking about the, the people who dwell on the earth. It's different, completely different. Context-wise. But love for God excludes love for the world system. And so, believer, you need to stop loving the world. Why? Because love for the Father evicts love for the world system. And, And it's important to see, that means we're supposed to be cultivating a love for God. It's not just a matter of stop doing this, don't do that, turn away from that. It's turn toward God. Enjoy him. I think a lot of times this gets reduced down to a bunch of, you know, do's and don'ts and, 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 and other things. Certainly, it will result in us casting aside things. 
But the point isn't that we have a problem out there or we are outside of ourselves. We, we don't go certain places or do certain things. Yes, that's a byproduct. But the issue that he's dealing with here is the heart. And so believers stop loving the world. Why? Because love for the Father evicts love for the world system. And then we find he goes on to a further explanation. Why are these loves mutually exclusive? Why are they completely incompatible? And, and the first thing we would see is this. Because they have opposite origins. They come from two totally different places. Look at verse 16. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Uh, that that uh, small little word, but, is the strongest adversity that the Greek language has to offer. It is a, as a massive a contrast as you can get. So there is... What is from the Father, there's what is from the world, and they are the opposite of one another. But also we find here he clarifies what is all this stuff that's in the world. You know, he says all that's in the world, and in verse 16 he enumerates these different things. And you'll notice he starts off with this word lust. Uh, that's a very important word. That, that is uh, an intense longing. Um, it's it's, the, it's the, the Greek word thumos, which means desire, and, and the prefix epi is put on it to intensify it, so it's a very intense desire. But once we go into that term, and once we see that term, we find something, he's really talking about an internal disposition toward things. He's not just talking about, again, external actions. Once we use that term, we're now in the realm that takes us past mere behaviors. Those actions and, 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 and behaviors are indicators, but they're not the core issue. So the flesh, the lust of the flesh, what, what is that? It's a consuming desire. And, and flesh is the term that, that uh, Paul uses to, to describe the sinful tendency that all people, even those who have come to Christ, still wrestle with, the indwelling principle of sin. That part of us that is opposed to God. And, and, and it's not like the Gnostics would have taught in that time, which would be, well, the flesh is evil, the spirit's good, so it's your body. Your problem is your body. No, Paul is going to say, no, the, the body is actually designed by God, given to us by God. The, um, there's a dignity to the body. The body's going to be raised up in the resurrection. Your body is a part of, of Christ. You're in him. You're to use it to glorify him. So that's the physical element of our, our, our nature is not the problem. But the flesh is this area of, uh, in which we are indwelling sin still resides and we still have to battle it on a daily basis as believers. And, uh, and it includes all kinds of different things. Typically, it takes something that's good and then makes this good gift from God ultimate so that it then becomes evil. Uh, food would be a good example. Food's a blessing. Food's given to us by God. God actually made food that have, to have various flavors, it's to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. Yet, it can become an idol whereby we become gluttonous. Uh, the, the pursuit of sexual pleasure. God gave us that as a gift to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in a lifelong covenant of marriage. Anytime it's pursued outside of that, it becomes something destructive. Um, possessions. God's given us things. 
Again, we're to enjoy those with thanksgiving. But how quickly can possessions become everything we live for? Got to have that house. Got to have that car. Got to be wearing that stuff. And so whenever these gifts from God become disconnected from our love for God over and above all things, whenever the gift becomes separated from the giver, whenever our desires for those things become ultimate desires, at that point, we're now falling into the lust of the flesh. And uh, when, when Paul describes, I'm sorry, when John describes that here, he's telling us that we need to trust God, walk with God, enjoy God and his blessings. Instead of saying, thank God for the blessings, I'll see you later. Wow, look at this. So we can really see that deception is really at the core of the lust of the flesh. Every time the lust of the flesh takes over in our lives, it's saying or whispering to us something along these lines, the way to real life is to satisfy this desire at all costs. That's how you know you're alive. And the truth is the opposite of that. The truth is eternal life is knowing God. That's what we're told in John 17, 3. That's real life, knowing him personally. And joy comes as we learn to walk with him, as we learn to please him and glorify him. Joy comes as we grow in the love and knowledge of Jesus. I think John Piper says it really well. Kind of his ongoing statement that he said for many years now. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so, something we should hold on to, you know, you know you love the world when your life shrinks down to living for you, yourself, and your desires. That's when you know you're loving the world. You know you're loving God, on the other hand, when your life expands to to seeking to know him more, to pleasing him, to enjoying the eternal life that you have in Christ as a believer right now. And maybe you're here today and you've never come to that place of knowing him, of eternal life. Maybe your whole life has been spent just trying to chase after these things that declare to you that they're offering life when there's nothing there. And they've let you down. This is a a day to turn to Jesus. Whether you're here or, or you're online or, or outside, the, 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 the proclamation we find in the scriptures is this. Come to Christ by faith. Trust him. Turn away from all these other things that have promised you life. They're nothing but broken cisterns. They cannot possibly even hold water to quench your thirst. Turn to Jesus. And come to know what it means to have your sins taken away because of his sacrifice in your place and to receive the righteousness that comes from him. As as Andrew described earlier, it comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And you could know that this very day. But that's the lust of the flesh. And then 
John goes to get even more and more precise. He talks about the lust of the eyes. Same term, but now rather than being overall the inner part of you that, that is opposed uh, to trying to please God and drawn towards sin, now it's the lust of the eyes. And, and this is now an idea where that same strong desire is satisfied by feasting the eyes on some object in view. And we find that throughout the scriptures, the eyes are often that, that sort of avenue for perception and can be the avenue for temptation. Uh, we see it in the case of David and Bathsheba. He, he lusted after her first with his eyes and then he committed adultery. Uh, in contrast with that, Job was the one who said, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. And, and so we, we see that Certainly, these days, that is a powerful battle. Um, you know, I, I could ask you the question, if I was to go to your computer and look on your web browser, what's in your history? What's there? What have you been staring at? What are you looking at? And, and, and here's the thing. There's the actual act of looking at something, but again, we're now talking about a desire, right? So we're going past the activity to what's underneath that? What are you longing for? What are you after? Because there could be good reasons to go online. It's not all evil. I mean, it feels like most of it is, but it's not all evil, okay? There are some things. You can learn things. There's actual information to learn. You you can communicate with others. You can share things with others. You can encourage other people. Uh, the, the prayer factor alone from what's happened online is major. The fact that we can hear about people from around the world and pray for them instantly, that's a great blessing. But there could be some other desire prompting someone to go online. It could be to excite sexual lust after someone you have no right to. And what's the result of that? It's, it's a polluted heart. Uh, you, you might be there looking because you think you must purchase this item that you cannot afford. But you've got to have it. What's the result? Crippling, growing debt. Uh, you, you could be there looking online with a desire to either gossip about somebody or maybe to drink in some juicy tidbits of gossip, gossip about somebody else. What's the result? There's the inner rotting of your soul. There's a damaged relationship with another person. So we would find again a principle just that you know you love the world when what thrills you the most is in the pathway of what you see is either what I see or what I want or what I get. Um, You know, I see it, I want it, I get it. That's, That's the... I think it's a popular song. I have no idea who sings it. Frankly, I don't know how I even heard that. But <laughs> the point is, there is a song out there. I think it was at the gym. I was at the gym, come to think of it, yeah. But that, that's the attitude. I see it, I want it, I get it. That's the lust of the eyes. On the other hand, you know that you are loving God as you long to see Him more and His work. As the psalmist says, one thing I've asked of the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold or to see the beauty of the Lord and to glory in his temple. Totally different use of desire in connection with the eyes. The last scripture we would see here is the boastful pride of life. And this is seen in someone 
um, that would just talk about how much they've accomplished, what they've done. This is, you know, he or she has an arrogance about the way that they've fulfilled their goals, their dreams, and it's apart from God's work, it's apart from God's blessing or care. It's not divine sovereignty, it's not providence, it's me. And that's the idea of, again, the pride of life. Um, There's a desire within this description for recognition or applause. There's there's a sense that um, this is a person who, who wants to look to you as though they've got it all together. You know, they might have nothing in the bank account, but they're going to they're gonna tell you that they've got all the money in the world. Or, uh, you know, you talk to them about, you, you took a, a trip across the state lines, and they're like, yeah, well, I've gone to Europe five times in the past three months. You know, um, your house is 1,500 square feet. This person's saying, I've got 29,000, or 2,900 square feet, man. 29,000, that'd be a big house. 2,900 square feet. The point is, whatever you got, I got more. Interesting, the root of this word in, in, in Greek means a wandering about. So it's almost like this person can't sit still. They've got to go to the next place to get one better, to get one up, to, to excel somehow. Whether it be in the marketplace or amongst the family or in the neighborhood, wherever it would be. And so... Another principle would just be this. You know you love the world when you talk more about your accomplishments than Christ's accomplishments. When you place more hope in your accomplishments rather than his accomplishments. Or when you live more for your accomplishments rather than living in his accomplishments. And I think this avenue that we see, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, there's sort of a pathway here that results in this arrogance, and it calls us to a place of self-examination. It really calls us to, to dig down deeper as to why do we do what we do? Again, the Lord's not content just to deal with behavior. He's after our hearts. And so we need to learn to ask ourselves some tougher questions. Here's one, for example. Why do, why do you work out? I mean, if some of you are like, please, I don't, I need to. Okay, fine. But for those who do, for those who do, why? why? I mean, it's the same external activity. Maybe, maybe you go to a gym. Is it, is it for a healthy body and a healthy mind? Okay, that, that's, that's a good desire there. Yeah. Or is it because you want to look appealing to others to attract their attention? Which is it? Because that desire is certainly more about the boastful pride of life, isn't it? Here's another one. Why would we consider to move away to another area? Is it to care for our family? Is it to truly be a good steward of what God's given us? Great, those are good reasons. There could be other really good reasons. Or again, is it to have the house, the car, the lifestyle status that says, yeah, you made it? And if so, when we do that, are we not pursuing things that have more to do with the boastful pride of life? Now, let me put out a qualifier. I'm not saying it's always ungodly to move. He's like, man, why is he messing with me right now? Okay, look, I'm not 
trying to do that. But let's look at what the passage says here. There are good reasons for doing things, and many people have and are considering those things as well, and that's, we praise God for the fact that we need to ask those questions. And many of you have. But I just want to challenge us. What We got to ask questions about the desire that we're chasing and why. Because I think the boastful pride of life is a lot more subtle than we think. And many times we just do things without asking why. And that is not living a growing Christian life. To grow in our walk with the Lord, we need to look at those things. These avenues are the ways that the world entices us and are the ways that the world deceives us. The world insists that we live independent of God because we have to have whatever it would be. And it's always been that way, by the way. You know, when you look at the fall of, of, of Adam and Eve, it was similar. You can trace that account out when, when, when uh, it was... Uh, beautiful to the eyes. The fruit was beautiful to the eyes and there was, it was, there was a desire there to, to, to be like God. And, um, and we would find that this is something that's very, very consistent throughout, from Old Testament, throughout human history to now. These same avenues, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, they're not from the Father, they're from the world. And very often they take things that are beautiful and good and pervert them to have a different outcome because they're taken separate from God or worse yet, utilized to oppose him. But again, let's emphasize the fact that it's from the inside. It's desires. It's not merely external behavior because sometimes I think what's happened in the past at least has been, well, just cut off that behavior and you're fine. You know, that idea of, you know, we don't do this and we don't do that and we don't go with girls who do and there we go, we're, we're okay. And it's just kind of always on the outside. I heard recently that apparently it is considered worldly in Finland to whistle. I guess, okay, so different places have different rules. The point isn't the external rule. The point is, where is your love? And if it's not for the Father, it's falling into being loved for the world. And if you find yourself loving the world and the things of the world, know this, John is saying, the love of the Father is not in you. Because you can't have both at the same time So again, believers, stop loving the world. Why? Because love for the Father evicts love for the world. Well, why is that? Well, because they have opposite origins. But also, and lastly, they also have opposite ends. Look at verse 17. The world is passing away and also its lusts. Interestingly, this passing away that's happening, it's happening right now. And and, and the way this... uh, is brought forward with the turn that's being used. The idea is this thing is passing away by its own activity and energy. There's sort of a self-disintegration happening here. That's what's going on with the world. 
this world system that's set up. You know, you look at Ephesians 6, and, and there's, you know, our war isn't against flesh and blood, right? But against rulers and authorities and principalities in the heavenly places. There's a spiritual hierarchy of sorts with, with the devil himself at the, at the very head of it. And it opposes God, and it takes forms in, in different places at different times. Uh, sometimes it's with, with government. Sometimes it's with cultural movements. Sometimes it's with specific leaders. But however it comes about, it's always there to oppose God. And we need to remember who our real battle is against. And we need to stand firm. That's the ongoing verb there, stand firm. But here we see that that all that activity, all the things that are going on there, it's passing away. It's it's in a process of self-disintegration right now. And, And so really what John's saying here is, hey, if the world's passing away and all of its lust, why are you gonna invest there? Why would you do that? You know, someone came to you and said, hey, I have got an investment opportunity for you. So you get in here at the entry level and just know this. In a year, this company is going to be gone. Why would you invest in that? You would be a fool. And yet, we do so very easily when it comes to our daily lives. We do that very thing. The word for passing away was used in the first century in sort of the area of drama. So you would have a set that was there with backdrops and different props and things. And when the play was over, what did you do? Well, that set passed away. It was taken down. It was torn down bit by bit, piece by piece. I don't know, I kind of have a picture of, of you know, an actor and, and he or she is on set, but somehow they get deluded into thinking that this is real life and they start living on the set. You know, it's, it's a prop living room. Hello, it's not real. No, this is my living room and I'm here. I'm moving in. The thing's going to be torn down tomorrow. No, this is my couch. I mean, you would just have a very strange conversation with that person. But that's the picture here. Why would you love the world and the things of the world when it's being torn down right now? No, instead... The one who does the will of God lives forever. Why are you going to make sure that you love God and not the world? Well, love for God evicts love for the world system. And they have an opposite end because love for God results in truly enjoying him, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who is returning very soon, the one whose kingdom is forever. And so that's the choice. God or the world? You will love one or the other. And brothers and sisters, as you are pulled and tempted and drawn towards loving the world, we need to heed this warning. Stop loving the world. Because to do so is to invest in emptiness, is to chase after wind. To do so is to not even grasp who the Father really is. 
I love many things about Reformation Day, and I love reading different things about Martin Luther, but one of the things that he captured as he was studying the book of Romans, at first he dreaded God. He describes that how God was a cruel, heartless tyrant who demanded obedience that we would pay him so that he would accept us. Then he studies the book of Romans and he finds that the gospel says the exact opposite. The gospel says God sent Jesus to die for sinners, that God justifies the ungodly, that God rescues sinners, and once we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, as a result of that, from the overflow of that acceptance and his indwelling, then we obey. As much as anything, Martin Luther rediscovered, yes, it was the gospel, yes, it was the avenue of salvation, but he also discovered, rediscovered, the true nature of the fatherhood of God. With a father like that, why would you want to do anything but love him? With a father like that, why would you turn to other things? Author Jill Briscoe gives the following account of her childhood in England. She writes, Though I was barely six years of age, I would remember sitting by a roaring fire on a Sunday during World War II. Our family had fled the bombs that rained down on us one night, chasing us hundreds of miles away to the beautiful English Lake District, William Wordsworth Country. The mists were gone and a storm had broken over our heads and the rain like giant tears slashed against the window pane and the thunder grumbled away as if it were angry. It had to hang around all day. I didn't like storms and I was old enough to understand that a bigger storm was raging, a war involving the entire world. But at the moment it seemed far away. The fire was warm and my father was relaxed, reading the paper, sitting in his big chair. Suddenly, as if he were aware I needed a bit of reassurance, he put down his paper and smiled at me. Come here, little girl, he said in his quiet, commanding voice. And then I was safe in his arms, lying against his shoulder, feeling the beat of his heart. What a grand place to be. Here I could watch the rain and listen to the thunder all day. I've realized how my heavenly father shelters me from the storms of life when times of sorrow swamp me at my mother's funeral. I saw the reassurance of my father's presence when the winds of worry whipped my confidence as I faced gangs of young people in the street evangelism. I, I glanced up to see my heavenly father's face when floods of fear rose in my spirit as I waited in a hospital room for results of frightening tests. And through it all, I sensed my heavenly father saying, come here, little girl. I climbed into his arms, leaned against his shoulder, and murmured, Ah, this is a grand place to be. And as I rest in that safe place, knowing that my father is bigger than any storm that beats against the window, pain in my life, I can watch the rains and listen to the thunder, knowing that everything is all right. Here I can feel the beat of my father's heart. That's who the father is. That's what he's like. And his love is much more constant than even what she described. Why would we want to love a world that's passing away? 
Why would we want to be drawn by its lusts? With a father like this, with the might and grace and power and and ongoing faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness that he will never violate, the fact that he is a future kingdom and reign that's already been inaugurated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, how can we not love the Father more and more and thereby stop loving the world? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would grace us to grow and to see and to understand that Love for the Father evicts love for the world system. Lord, we thank you that though the world is passing away, though it's very much like the set of a play being dismantled even now, that those who do your will live forever because Jesus is risen and alive and we are in him by grace, through faith, to your glory. Please anchor these things to our own hearts, even as we walk through challenging days together. We lift all these things to you and we give you thanks for your work and the fact that you will complete what you have begun in each of your children. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.